A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheimbare Brüder in America. So tausend Schafes at the guitar. Out of the 24 who were killed, were Americans who had come to learn in heaven. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late. And it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Welcome, everyone, to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And this episode has been generously sponsored by Legacy Judaica in honor of the upcoming auction on September 13th. You can check out their catalog on LegacyJudaica.Bidspirit.com or email Yehuda at LegacyJudaica.net. That's not me. It's someone else named Yehuda. Or a phone number, uh, 732-523-2262. It happens to be that I was, I was looking into this sponsorship. Everyone does auctions today. It's become the, the big thing of uh, old manuscripts and letters and Judaica and everything. But here we actually have a, a very impressive uh, auction house that I'm personally familiar with. Very professional. They have great stuff. And this particular auction has some very uh, impressive, historically valuable artifacts that I was uh, perusing through their catalog. And and uh, I found a few things that just caught my eye that are you know just my personal uh, interest. I, I advise uh, everyone to take a look at it and see the auction and Legacy uh, Judaica um, for this upcoming auction on September 13th. There's actually a few volumes from the famous Daniel Bomberg 1522 Venice, Italy, Shas, uh, one of the most uh, famous printings of the Shas of all time. Um, so they have a first printing of that. They have lots of old uh, first prints for him. There is an interesting sefer there from Yeshivas Chachme Lublin that was printed there by uh, an alumnus of the yeshiva that had the Haskama, Haskamas really, uh, several approbations from the Rebbeim there, from Rebbeim Shapiro and from um, from uh, other Rebbeim there. I think the Kajlik of Arav also caught my eye. Um, another thing that caught my eye there was they had a first printing of Rabbi Rucham Levavitz of the Mashkiach of the Mir, his Shmuzin was printed Today we know them as Das Chachma Musar. It was originally printed as Chever Ma'amarim, and it was printed in Vilna several weeks before the war broke out um, in 1939. And uh, it's listed on this auction as at $200. I'm assuming that it's a typo and there was a couple of zeros missing. It's probably an opening bit of 2000 or 20000 something like 
Rabbi Rucham's Shmuzin would probably go for a lot more. And there was things from uh, Baranovich and the first printing of the Arsameach. There was a Yiddish pamphlet, a history of the Slabatki Yeshiva. It's fascinating uh, to see that. There was a polemic against the Manhattan Eruv from 1910. And speaking of polemics, there was an original first printing of Naftali Hertz Wiesel's Divrei Shalom Ve'emes, which was a one of the first volleys of the uh, Haskalah in Eastern Europe. His his uh, his uh, ideas about changing Jewish education, which was very controversial at the time. Of course, in retrospect, Naftali Hertz Wiesel was a moderate uh, maskil. There was uh, polemics between the Naturi Karta and Agudis Yisrael. There was an issue with machine matzahs. There's all kinds of historic letters that have value and autograph value. And it's actually something of a a pity that all of this goes into private collections with these uh, auctions. And they should really all go into public libraries and be accessible to researchers. But, oh well, that's not what I have a say in. But it... Once it is being auctioned, so it should at least go into the hands of good people. And uh, those were just some of the things that caught my eye. In any case, it's also sponsored, this episode is also sponsored in honor of Camp Monk legend Ezra David. And that brings us into the topic at hand. We're continuing with the city series. This is Great American Jewish Cities. And it's not a city, it's a region. It's the Catskills. Um We'll talk about the Caskills, or is it the mountains, or is it upstate New York, or is it Sullivan County, or the Borscht Belt, or the country? A lot of names to it, and we'll talk about the different stories that each name signifies. I just want to read a couple of letters from the last few cities episode. We have from the Five Towns, which was two, ep- two episodes ago in L.A., which was our last one. Um, in regards to the Five Towns, a listener submitted that Rabbi Morris Friedman, who was actually a religious Jew, um, Orthodox, um, he was the rabbi in the conservative synagogue. Um, he had he hosted a fundraiser on a Sunday morning in the conservative synagogue to support Chinuchatzmoy to support, and he, he announced that it's to support Jewish education in the state of Israel, and everyone should support it. So he have a fundraiser for a in a conservative synagogue by an Orthodox rabbi for the religious schools in Israel. Um, Ironic. And another listener submitted that Rabbi Shia Libor, who we discussed as one of the architects, one of the rabbinical leaders of the five towns in Woodmere, um, of Yiddishkeit in the five towns in many ways, in Kashrus and in the rabbinate. But the emphasis was that one of the biggest ones was that he would build the Eruv, and one of the first Arabs in the United States uh, altogether, and it really created a cohesive community. Really created, established the the uh, the basis of of being a Jewish community. The fact that there was an Arab and the struggles to build the Arab and Rabbi Libor actually went out and purchased telephone poles, and he did the legwork of physically schlepping telephone poles and going to offices and arranging all the uh, the uh, the arrangements to the to, to build this Erev. Um, and here we have a nice letter that I wanted to read in almost its entirety about the L.A. Um, Great American Jewish Cities episode. And here it goes. I grew up in Rabbi Yechiel Yehuda Isaacson's shul and went to the Torah Semes school. He was married to Reb Moshe Teitelbaum's sister, the, the Be'er Moshe of Satmer's sister, his, his sister Chana. Rabbi Isaacson 
was Nifter in 1977, at which time Reb Moshe was the Segeta Rebbe. Rabbi Isaacson lost a lung due to Nazi brutality during World War II. He walked around LA with a nasal cannula attached to an oxygen tank. On Shabbos, he would have a boy under bar mitzvah wheel the tank from his house to shul and back. In shul, he had a large tank built into the wall behind his stender. The school cheder he found, the Terrace MS, had 80 boys and girls on Fairfax Avenue when I attended in the late 60s and 70s. He tried to replicate the European style of learning in Yiddish and keeping the boys at least in line with belts and rulers, which eventually stopped. Today, with the new generation, the school is quite popular with over a thousand students. That's that letter, excellent letter, adds to the LA episode. Um, today I'm actually recording an episode about the Catskills when it's September 2nd, the 75th anniversary of the surrender of the Japanese to the United States to end World War II. So how can we not talk about World War II? So we won't. But I promise that hopefully the next episode we will uh, do something World War II related in honor of this momentous uh, occasion. But as we said, I'm going to talk about upstate New York, which brings to mind places like the Homoac, which... I remember attending as a child a couple of times the Homoac Hotel, which is also part of history. Camp, of course, everyone's gone for summers and summers to different camps that dot the landscape. Um, but in bungalow colonies, you know, places like uh, like Luxor, which I don't know if it's contemporary or it's part of Jewish history or both. But now that the summer is over, we just ended the summer, we can talk about the history of the Catskills, of the Jewish Catskills, and um, and there's really four parts to this story. One is, the the three of them are the summer parts, the bungalow colonies, the the uh, summer camps, the Jewish summer camps, and the um, and the Borscht Belt, the hotels, the old resort hotels. But there's another part of the story, the fourth part, which I'm going to actually start with, is the all year round, the Jewish communities that were all there all year round, and the institutions that they built and the story of those Jewish communities, which since they they are there all the time, or they were there all the time, so I'm going to really open up with them. This episode actually is less chronological and more, we're going to go from topic to topic, we're going to go from the Jewish communities, and then we're going to go to the summer story, and, uh, and again, start from the beginning. So, the uh, general Jewish life up in the mountains starts uh, at about the turn of the century, um, possibly even earlier, um, but the Jews are trying to get out of the crowded uh, New York City, especially the Lower East Side with the great immigration, crowding up everything, and everyone's trying to move somewhere, get out of the crowded conditions. So some move up to the top state New York, which is very rural, very much farmland. The, the hamlets and villages, the, the old Route 17 is basically like a dirt road at the time. And um, and uh, the Jewish community start to spring up. You have places like Monticello, which um, which became a very famous Jewish community till today. It's an active Jewish community with shuls and and uh, and eventually they were the one who in that region had a day school, a Hebrew day school, and uh, they have Jewish farms in the area of Monticello, the famous uh, Gibbers Gibber family. And they they had a a egg farm in the area, 
Um, they're very pr prominent. They're involved in actually founding the day school and running the day school for decades, as far as I know, could be till today. Um, and they and they um, in, in, involved very involved in Jewish life in the area. Now, um, the they in Monticello. In Monticello, excuse me, just uh, adjusting my notes here. So they, 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 there was there was an old shul. There was several shuls, even non even non orthodox shuls, um, but even but in the within the orthodox uh, shuls there was um, several shuls, and eventually they merged when the community got a little weaker, but. There was an interesting fellow who lived there for many years, and this gives you an idea of what life was like up in upstate New York. Uh, his name was Shloyma Schneider. He was known as the Eloy of Monticello, which I don't know if that means that the other Jews who lived in Monticello at the time were not Eloyim, or he just was the biggest Eloy in Monticello. Um, it's hard to know. But he came from a Lithuanian prominent Jewish family. His father, Reb Moshe Schneider, was from Stuchin, who... The Talmud of Reb Shimon Shkup, and and uh, he was close to the Panavizhirov. And uh, in any case, he moved to the United States, and his young son Reb Shloim Schneider is born in 1924, and he goes to Rabbi Yitzchok when he's 12 years old. He was in RJJ, the regular uh, Lower East Side, not regular because most of them went to public school, but the ones who went to yeshiva, and the family was very close to the Meishes Salavechik, and he leaves Rabbi Yitzchok at a young age, he was a tremendous genius, as I mentioned, and he used to just hang around with different rabbis and Talmud HaChacham on the east side and different libraries. He was close with the Visker Eloy. He was close with Rabbi Dr. Louis Ginsburg of the seminary. He was very independent. And he wrote, he started writing at a young age. He wrote Svarim on Kolaterikula, most, most of which have never even been published. On Halacha, on Shas, on Kabbalah, on Chumash, on Tanakh, on, on everything. And he had a tremendous library of over 10,000 Svarim. He probably had a photographic memory. So he becomes a rabbi in the Bronx. But in 1965, he's invited to become a rabbi of the shul in Monticello. And at that time, two shuls in Monticello merged. And he lost his position as rabbi. Um, so he just uh, became the, the Hevra Avasian shul, which still exists, became the primary shul. And he, and he stays there. His wife becomes a public public school teacher, teacher, and he decides to sit and learn and study Torah for the rest of his life, quietly cut off from society. His kids go to the day school in Monticello, and uh, and he and he is somewhat influential in the community in the early years. But uh, slowly, he um, he you know becomes more reserved and used to give shiurim to the community. He got upset that the chumashir he gave to the community, the one who organized the chumashir, his store was open on Shabbos. His business was open on Shabbos. How could I give a chumashir, the one who organized the chumashir, his, uh, his store is open on Shabbos. So he stopped that. He was an eighth grade rebbe in the day school, but uh, he left because he tried to push the board to open a high school because everyone was going to public school after eighth grade. And the board said uh, there was no money. They opposed it. So even when he went ahead and he actually bought a building, there was a building in nearby Woodridge, or Levi Krupenya was an Altamir. He had a yeshiva in Woodridge and eventually he left. And uh, Mayor Stern was involved in that yeshiva also. It was the Woodridge yeshiva. And, um, and so he bought that building. 
and and personally from his own funds, and the board still refused to open a high school. So he said, "I'm leaving." But the children, the, his students, didn't want him to leave. He was very beloved by his students. He used to play ball with them. He was very uh, relaxed. He was very, despite his his being such a tremendous Talmud Chacham, he was very what we would call with it. And uh, and uh, they they signed a petition to try to keep him to stay, but he left. And he spent the next 30 years in almost total isolation. He wouldn't even go to the shul because the mechitza wasn't good enough for him. He would send his kids to shul, but he wouldn't go. And he had, you know, almost no recognition by the community eventually because he was just completely isolated. Sometimes the summer rabbis visiting upstate would, would visit him or borrow his farm from him. In fact, the Novominsk Rebbe was very close with him. And it was prior to his becoming the Novominsk Rebbe. And when he was appointed to replace his father, as the Rebbe, so that summer he went again to visit Rabbi Schneider. So Rabbi Shlomo Schneider said, don't visit me, you're, you're a Rebbe now. It's not beneath your dignity to come visit. You can't come and, and visit me. Uh, but they remained very close. Um, so that's, uh, that's just one person who, who lived there. He would be very friendly with the, with the local non-Jews. He would uh, hang around by the local mechanic when he had his car fixed, and he would schmooze it up. With the with the with the store owners and and uh, he was very funny. He would make jokes with them and he loved music. He loved the opera. He loved chazanas. He was a big fan of Moshe Eicher from his Lower East Side days. He would actually say Yizker for Moshe Eicher because he enjoyed his stuff. And uh, he, as far as he knew, Moshe Eicher did not have any religious descendants saying Yizker for him. So he would say Yizker for him. Um, in in fact. Uh, um, the the non non Jews in Monticello remembered him for many many years uh, after his passing about how how much how friendly he was uh, with the people in the area and um, and uh, and how much he would talk with them. So that's the small town Jewish life in Monticello at that time through the prism of of one person who lived there. But you know the Monticello was just the main the main place in the area. There's just one community after another. Um, you know, Liberty. Uh, almost all of these towns had a year-round Jewish communities with potential. Almost all of them still have old shuls that were built in the first decades of the 20th century. And you have a place like South Fallsburg, like Fallsburg, that's that's still an active community because of the yeshiva, right? You have um, Rabbi Rucham Gorelik, who, when he was a yeshiva in, in Yeshiva University, he also opened um, institutions in the Bronx, and he named them Zichr and Maisha after a local boy who had, who had joined the U.S. Navy and was lost at Normandy during World War II. And he opens a, a, a cheder, a, a elementary school, a high school, a yeshiva. They move up in the late 1960s, 1969 approximately, um, which I find ironic because we'll speak about Woodstock. So two great things you know, happened in 1969 in uh, spiritual and... Uh, I guess spiritual in another, another funny way. Um, uh, in 1969, uh, as far as the Jews were concerned, so the the Fallsburg Yeshiva uh, opened. He hires eventually um, his, his son becomes the main person in charge, Rabbi Gorelick, and he hires uh, who just passed away a couple of years ago, and he hires um, he hires uh, Rabbi 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 Excuse me, Rabbi Barvachtfeigel the son of Reb Nassim Vachtfeigl, to be the Rashiva, and he's, who's still the Rashiva till today. And he becomes one of the most important and, and prestigious Yeshivas in the United States. 
uh, with hundreds of, of Talmidim, and, it be, and it's a whole system. There's a boys' school, there's a girls' school, there's a high school, there's a base medrash, there's a koil, and there's a community built around it. Now, the Folsberg Jewish community and the shul existed before that. There are Jewish stores, and there was an active community. Rabbi Nachman Bowman, in fact, was the rabbi there for a short time in the mid-1950s, and he was beloved by the Jewish community. Um, when he left, one of the... Uh, the members of the board said to him, we understand that you have to leave because this community is too small for your talents. You belong in a bigger place, uh, but we'll miss you. Um, you have, you know, I, now the stories of the South Fallsburg Yeshiva are the stuff of legend in the Yeshiva world. There was, there were, there were, there were the, what we used to, we used to hack uh, late nights in the mirror about the, about the legends and, Probably most of them were legends about the yeshiva of South Fallsburg. It was such a famous yeshiva with with uh, famous personalities over the decades. Uh, some of the stories might actually be true. Allegedly, the, uh, they tried electing the boys in the yeshiva as a prank, tried electing Rabbi Abu Gorelik as the fire chief of the town of Fallsburg um, at one point. But there was not, it was not the only yeshiva upstate. There was in Mountaindale which also had an old shul, an old Jewish community. Jews from Germany actually founded the community. In fact, the shul itself, the shul building, had a mikveh. It was one of the first and only shuls in upstate New York to have a mikveh. And Rabbi Yehuda Davis, who was a fascinating personality, um, had a yeshiva there for many years. He was, Rabbi Yehuda Davis started out in Baltimore, and he had gone to Hopkins, and then he um, went to Yeshiva University, and he was also in Columbia for a period of time. He had a Chabura in Yeshiva University with Ramatri Gifter and Ravigda Miller and Nassan Vachtfeigel and all the greats of, of Yeshiva College at the time. And he encouraged them. They had a Chabura. They learned together. It was a very elite Chabura. And he, would encourage, he encouraged them to go study in Yeshivas overseas in Europe, which he himself did. He went to the Mir, he was in Slabatka. And then he comes back to Baltimore, eventually had a yeshiva in Brighton Beach, and a short period of time also in Boston, and then eventually moves to Mountaindale. And he had a small yeshiva, a very individualistic approach to chinuch, very unique, uh, actually, approach to education, a very unique yeshiva. He was, he was a brilliant man who, uh, who, was, who knew everything, history and current events and science and mathematics and he uh, he read the New York Times every day. He felt it's important for a Rosh Hashiva to be up to date, and uh, and he he was he encouraged to you know there's a story how much he tried to help his students. There was a yeshiva boy uh, in his his yeshiva at one point who needed to get a job, and he tried to help him get a job. And he had a connection in Brandeis. This when the yeshiva was in Boston, I believe. And he tried to get help. The, there was a connection to Brandis. He had, this boy had to go for an interview. And it turned out that if he would go for the interview, he would miss Mincha. And the boy was an orphan during the year of saying Kaddish for his parent. So he said to Rabbi Davis, I can't go for the interview at Brandeis because I'm going to miss Mincha and Kaddish. So he said, this is more important than Kaddish. You have to get a job. And the job interview is now. So you have, this is more, this is your Kaddish. This is more important than saying Kaddish. He was very particular in his yeshiva about, um, about beard shaving, no matter what background you came from. And if you came from a Hasidic background, then you did Hataras Nadarim. And you definitely had to keep your tzitzis tucked in. He said, this is the legacy of Slabatka. This is the legacy of the Lithuanian yeshiva world, the Torah world. You have to look organized. And this is our tradition. And tzitzis in and beards are off. 
And uh, but he was someone who very tried to very in, intense atmosphere. He, you know, he was very uh, very. Uh, there was no bain hazman and there was no vacation in the yeshiva. Very strong on the learning and using your using your seichel and a musar environment. So it was a very very interesting uh, Mountaindale. Uh, atmosphere. Swan Lake, of course, is a famous Jewish community. All, all along the old Route 17, which people talk so nostalgically about. And if we're going up Route 17, so then we come to Woodstock, um, which the Woodstock Festival did not take place in Woodstock, it took place in Bethel. Um, so the one who hosted it, the one who rented out his dairy farm, was a fellow by the name of Max Yasgur, who was Jewish, and he grew up Originally, you know, a family came from immigrant family, the East Side, the regular, uh, the regular textbook story, and he had this dairy farm in Bethel, and uh, and he was the one who rented it uh, to the organizers, the financiers, and the organizers of of uh, of of the Woodstock Festival. Three of whom, out of four, Roberts wasn't Jewish, but Michael Lang, Artie Kornfeld, and Joel Rosenman were all Jewish. So it's Jewish people organizing and financing. Woodstock, the one who rents out his property is Woods, is for the festival is also Jewish, and of course a lot of the you know the, the organizers were Jews from Brooklyn, um, and uh, a lot of the people who attended, of course, were Jewish as well. Close to half a million, uh, one of the greatest uh, festivals in history, which of course there's a lot to talk about, but uh, we'll I guess save that for another time. August uh, 1969, the Woodstock generation. Rabbi Freifeld, Rabbi Shlomo Freifeld of Shariyashiv, who had only recently opened Shariyashiv, he was up in a bungalow colony with Shariyashiv, also a legendary part of upstate New York, the Shariyashiv bungalow colony. But uh, he went out that Shabbos, uh, you know, uh, on the dusty road of, of uh, right off of, of Route 17, and he encouraged whenever he would, you know, perceive that it was Jews, the traffic jams were insane, and everyone was was stuck there, and he would encourage. Uh, 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 Jewish kids going up to the festival to stop off in his bungalow colony for a few drinks and to refresh themselves and try to uh, influence them in, 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 at some level. Um, there was the further, way further upstate, you have you know, Tannersville and Hunter and the Golding family, Mrs. Necha Golding, who had her Jewish community up, uh, up in Tannersville. So she hosted her Moshe Mordechai Epstein when he came up in the 1920s. Um, at her place, they had a they had a, a shul and everything. It was a whole community up there, and and uh, and Ramosh Matrabshi looks looked like he needed a vacation and a rest and a rest. So as the story goes, she Ramosh Matra went to continue raising funds for the Slobotki Yeshiva, and Mrs. Necha Golding said, "You need a rest. You can't. You need a vacation. You need to relax. How can you go about?" crisscrossing the United States now when you're in such a weak state. He says, I need to raise money for my yeshiva. So she said, how much do you anticipate? I think it was she or her husband, perhaps, uh, um, uh, was still alive at the time. So he might have made the offer, or both of them. They were a good couple together. And uh, how much do you plan on raising? And he, you know, quoted some, some and, uh, and she said, okay, we'll give you the money. We'll write out a check for that entire sum, and just uh, you rest here in in the Catskills, the ups in upstate New York, and you shouldn't have to schlep around. And they gave him the money. Um, so the many Jewish farms upstate. I remember spending a summer on one of those part of a summer on one of those farms. Um, but but in, historically, like I said, the Gibber farm. But there was many others as well. And we come to the next town of Woodridge, 
Shai's mentioned before, had a yeshiva for a period of time, Rebbe Kropenier, Mayor Stern, others were involved. The shul in Woodridge had the distinction of having Rebarach Bar Leibowitz when he was fundraising in the United States. He fundraised in the Jewish communities in upstate New York, which were, like I said, there was a valiant attempt to make a strong Jewish presence there and uh, and the rabbinate and shuls and communities and all these different towns. And uh, so Rebarach Bar was fundraising there and he davened in the shul in Woodridge. Um, there, there was, we move over from the, the, uh, tra- transition from the year-round communities to the summer story. We go to the camps and the bungalow colonies. One of the earlier camps was Camp Masifta. The Abshraga Fivel Mendelovich, uh, began in the uh, late 1930s. And he, the idea was to have a place like on the European model, uh, Eastern Europe. They have the Dutches, where the yeshivas went out to the forests and to the mountains and to the resorts with the Russia yeshiva. And there was a more relaxed atmosphere together with this exposure to great, uh, great Talmud uh, Chacham, great Gedele Yisrael, great Torah scholars and leaders. Rabbi Shleimah Hyman would spend summers there as the Rashi Torah Rabbi Chonor Wasserman, when he was in America. For I think two summers, he spent it there. Shaga Fivel himself, you know, the type of camp it was. It was just a camp for relaxing. They studied Torah most of the day. It wasn't much sports, and uh, I definitely think there was no color war, which, which um, would would mean that it wasn't, it wasn't even a real camp. It was no color war, um, and uh, but it was like I said, more similar to the Dutchess. And uh, in fact, Rabbi Yitzchak the Boston Rebbe. Long time Boston Rebbe, he studied at Teravidas as a young uh, teenager. He went to Camp Masifta and he said there was almost no sports. There was just learning. But one day they announced they're going to be playing baseball. So he went to watch. You know, what's baseball? He didn't know what baseball He didn't know when, when in his father's home, they didn't know about baseball. So he went to watch and they recruited him to play. They were short a man. And so I, and he played. So I don't know how many Hasidic Rebbes in, in history since the Baal Shem Tov till today have played baseball, but he did. And he said it actually assisted him. And later in life, he was able to relate to the American college students that he, he was very famously involved in Kirov in Boston. Uh, what, what, the early Jewish camps in, in, uh, in upstate New York was the Beitar camps. Vladimir Jabotinsky, head of the revisionist Zionism, when he broke off from the mainstream uh, Zionism, as he started the revisionists, so he wanted to organize a Jewish army to fight the Nazis. The revisionist philosophy was about, was a lot of it, had a lot of, a lot of, I'm not going to go into the whole gamut of revisionist philosophy, of uh, revisionist Zionist philosophy of Javotinsky, who was a brilliant man, um, wrote a lot and uh, a brilliant orator, um, but uh, it's also for another time. But one aspect of the philosophy was um, Jewish fighting force, a uniform. In fact, when he was still young in Odessa, there was a, which was the center of Yiddish, uh, Yiddish and Jewish culture. So there was a, a play. They staged a play, a theater, in a theater. And, um, and one of the, and one of the scenes in the play involved soldiers, Russian soldiers, French soldiers. It was part of the scene of, of the play. So there were Jewish actors in a uniform. Uh, of of French soldiers, whatever it was, and there was an anti-Semitic incident in the theater, and you know they broke into the Yiddish theater and they started making a ruckus. And Ukrainians in Odessa, which was common at the time, and they and the actor 
that was wearing a French army uniform came out to the stage to see what the commotion was. And when the when the anti-Semite ruffians saw, they saw someone in uniform, they thought it was a police officer, they thought it was a soldier, so they backed off and they ran out. And Jabotinsky got up and said, do you see, my friends, what a Jew in uniform means and what it could mean to people and what it should mean to us? So that was his philosophy. So he tries to convince Winston Churchill and Chaim Weizmann to organize a Jewish army to fight the Nazis. And he was in the United States to garner support for the idea. And Beitar, which was the revisionist uh, youth group, ran a Jewish self-defense camp in Hunter, upstate. On August 3rd, he's visiting there in 1940, and he dies suddenly of a heart attack. And his funeral in New York afterwards was allegedly one of the biggest in the state history. Uh, actually, also Shalom Aleichem's funeral in 1916 was also one of the biggest in New York City history. But um, this is from uh, Camp in Hunter, uh, another upstate New York uh, Jewish story. He was actually reburied in 1964 in Har Herzl uh, under when Levi Eshkol was prime minister. When Ben-Gurion was prime minister, he didn't want his rival there. He allegedly said, we don't need the bones of dead Jews here in, uh, in Israel. But eventually he got there. Now there's other camps. There's the modern Orthodox uh, communities established many camps upstate New York. Camp Highlight was a famous camp. We discussed Highlight in our Five Towns episode, so there was Camp Highlight. It was, many, uh, was one of the many camps there. There were some, some of the modern Orthodox camps made it to the Poconos, made it to Pennsylvania. Um, but in fact, there was actually an Orthodox Jewish camp already in the 1920s, Machanayim, perhaps the first Orthodox Jewish camp upstate. They advertised in, in the, the newspapers that they're around in the early 1920s, but we move along to other famous camps. Some are part of history, like Kol Rina, or Camp Tervadas, uh, which was affiliated with the yeshiva, but uh, that was around for a long time. And of course, one of the earliest ones was Camp Aguda. Um, Mike Tress, when he started Camp Aguda, he considered it a Kirov enterprise, which um, which would be essential for building Yiddishkeit, for getting the kids out of the city, getting them to the summer, getting them to a religious environment, and he made sure to have a great G'dayla Yisrael visit there and vacation there. In fact, during the war, when Mike Tress was completely involved with Hatzalah work, with rescue activism, the only other budget, uh, budgetary need that he allocated funds for from the Aguda's limited funds was to maintain Camp Aguda, which was in High Mountain, later in Ferndale. And, and uh, you know, having G'dayla Yisrael vacation upstate New York was, of course, everywhere. Misha Feinstein was in his bungalow Staten Island, and, and many others, but many of them would come visit uh, Camp Aguda, or Bank of Kamenetsky. And I remember speaking to someone who described to me the scene of Rav Ruderman coming into camp in the 1980s, when he was already the, one of the senior uh, living uh, you know, pre-war Torah scholars and leaders. And just the idea that the whole camp got together and to greet him and to come to the entrance. And they, I think they put on like a you know, uh, you know, they didn't wear shorts and t-shirts. They more, they were more respectable clothing to greet a Ruderman. The impression that it made on him, uh, you know, many Hasidic rebbes, the Blujava Rebbe, and many other Hasidic rebbes, or Meisha Sherer, of course, the president of Agudas Yisrael would come every year. Um, but all summer long, for decades, of course, was Rabbi Belsky. He was there. He he lived in the camp, and that left him made a, a huge impact on campers for generations of campers as well. His 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 personality and his teachings and his his uh, 
um, you know, he was you know a great genius, and he, he was also very, very, very uh, down to earth. He would actually take out the the campers um, with a telescope at night. Uh, you can't see this in Brooklyn. You can only go and see this upstate New York to look at the stars. And he knew astronomy like he knew everything. And he would teach them about the stars and the constellations and teach them how it's related to Kiddush HaChodesh and, and all, all kinds of interesting things like that. So Rabbi Strobelsky left and made a big impact also. And of course, you have Camp Monk, which started off as a group of kids uh, going to a farm and eventually becomes one of the most successful and prestigious camps in the mountains, run by the, the, the yucky German rabbinic monk family, just several generations of which, when they hired Josh Silberman, so it was the legendary Mechanach, and of course, Rabbi David Kohn, Yibad Lechaim, who's still there, um, and many, many uh, people. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to get into the Camp Monk uh, story because it's, it's a no-win situation, because all of a sudden you're going to get calls from all the Camp Monk people, you forgot to mention him, and what about him, and Ramirez Stern won Color War, and, and there's Monk Legends, and he's bigger, and he's not as big, and why don't you discuss the theme song of that year? So we'll just leave it and and mention it as a important part of Jewish history, and uh, and uh, and uh, and legend also. And speaking of legends, you have the Camp Heller basketball legends, where Abbe Kramer was really supposed to join the NBA, but he was just too modest to and uh, but importantly, getting serious for you know for a change. So you had places like Camp Sternberg, which people like Ronnie Greenwald and others established to to add to the the girls' camps phenomenon, and they start to uh, mushroom all over the upstate New York. And then you have the bungalow colonies, the early bungalow colonies, which uh, you know Rachel Shane describes in her book uh, All for the Boss about the Lizers bungalow colony. They struggled to get out of the Lower East Side in the 1940s, and they get the Lizer. Uh, bungalow colony, which is, you know, the the atmosphere of getting out of the city and driving upstate in those days, the way she uh, vividly describes it, and being this religious bungalow colony for many years, and it's right down the block from the Baba Rebbe who established his bungalow colony, and the and the Sigeta Rebbe, who I mentioned earlier, Rabbi Aaron Teitelbaum, is a member of the Lizer bungalow colony, and how and how they it becomes the, it's the first Shimer Shabbos bungalow one of them one of the first Shimer Shabbos bungalow colonies and then it starts to mushroom all over the mountains. Um, one of the religious hotels in the early years was uh, when Glen Wild Zucker's Hotel. All the big rabbis went to Zucker's. Lots of history there. There's uh, one of the Israeli uh, Besser just shared a story with me about Reblade Malin uh, in in Zucker's. How the old uh, Mister Zucker. Uh, related how Rebleib Malin was a guest at the hotel, and he started asking him everything about kashras, and he asked to look to see the kitchen, and uh, and he said maybe you could get a better hashgach on different food products that you use, and uh, I'll find it to you. He said I have a yeshiva, I know these things, I know which which stuff uh, are, are good hechsherim, and a few days later he asked to see the shechita of the chickens. They went down to Liberty, where there was a shlachtois in Liberty, and they watched the shechita, and he wants to visit the bakery, and he went to see how the bakers bake, and and he spent the entire vacation instead being busy in the kitchen at all different hours. And why did he do that? Because Rebleib, it turned out that Rebleib explained eventually that people know that I vacation here. Someone might assume that they can eat here, saying that even Rebleib Malin eats there. If so... It comes out that I'm essentially the Rav Hamachshir. If so, 
I must be the Mashgiach. And that uh, says a lot about Rabbi Malin and, and into the Zucker's, uh, Zucker's story. We can't go and speak about the, the phenomenon of the Catskills without mentioning, at least for a couple of minutes, the Borscht Belt. The Borscht Belt became the nickname, is the, the, um, the resort hotels um, that dotted the, uh, the Catskills during the years. And, uh, again, part of the nostalgia, part of the, the story of American Jewish history. In fact, it's, it's part of the development of American Jewish identity, even. The, for several generations um, of, of cultural identity, of it being in these Jewish resorts and the Jewish comedians, which I'll get to in a second, and the the Jewish atmosphere, uh, you know, they, they before the time of air travel, which is why the Borscht Belt disappeared. Once air travel became cheap and popular in the 19... started, I guess, in the 1950s and more in the 1960s and 70s. So then the the idea that you need to be, that the city people need a vacation in the mountains uh, stopped being so essential. Also, the fact that they didn't live in the city so much anymore, uh, more in the suburbs. So the idea that you have to go up to the mountains to get fresh air also was less uh, relevant. But the Borscht Belt hotels were very much part of the American Jewish scene, the New York American Jewish scene, uh, for many years. Um, and and uh, you had Grossinger's, probably the, the most famous. In fact, I have in front of me, and actually I'm holding it right now, a copy of the original 1958 uh, book called The Art of Jewish Cooking by Jenny Grossinger. Okay, so the one of the original, probably one of the first printed Jewish cookbooks in the United States comes from the, the heir of the, the Grossinger uh, story. Um, right? Uh, I'll, re- I'll read just from the, the opening page there. Jenny Grossinger is the celebrity whose zest for good Jewish food put Grossinger's famous Catskill Resort on the map and has attracted over 50,000 guests each year. She learned her traditional recipes in her mother's kitchen. She is a firm believer in her mother's maxim, no one must ever go away hungry. Right? So you have in the in the uh, in this in this Jewish resort, which is a golf course and skiing and hotels and condos, but the food there, as expressed in this cookbook, is I'm looking at the table of contents now. A chalant and noodles and kreplach, kugels, tzimis, knishes, piroshki, and blintzes, pickles. Um, uh, strudel, soup ac- accompaniments, including all kinds of knedlach. And that, that is the atmosphere of the Catskill Mountains Borschfeld scene at the time. Um, you know, they talk about in the introduction to the book about her mother, Malka Grossinger, who lived on the Lower East Side and eventually moves upstate. And, and, uh, and she said, my sainted gra- grandmother used to say, we must never let anyone go away from Grossinger's hungry. That guiding principle, together with a characteristic warmth and humanity. Again, I'm reading straight from the text. A concern for people that went far beyond the ordinary hotel owner guest relationship are perhaps the two cornerstones that help build a resort that now sprawls over a thousand acres of God's good earth and is known in the furthest corners of the globe. And that's 1958, and that kind of uh, expresses it. And uh, and it was kosher. Officially, Grossinger's was kosher. Officially, Kutcher's was kosher. I don't know how kosher by today's standards, but it officially was kosher. It was the Concord and the Neville. You know, Kutcher's and the Neville were from the last ones that actually only closed down in, in recent years. Grossinger's was gone in the 80s already. Um, and 
That brings us to Jewish comedy in the Borscht Belt, uh, which, again, forms part of the Jewish identity, the cultural Jewish. It was the food, it was the Jewish comedy, and that is uh, the bedrock of American Jewish identity for at least two or three generations. Unfortunately, that, that wasn't enough to sustain it beyond that. But just a few, a small sampling, and I'm not kidding, this is just a small sampling of comedians who started their illustrious careers in Borscht Belt hotels was Milton Burley, Lenny Bruce, Woody Allen, Jackie Mason, Mel Brooks, Jerry Seinfeld, Rodney Dangerfield, I don't even know if that's a soft or hard G, Joanne Rivers, Don Rickles, Billy Crystal, and many, many more. Uh, Another celebrity who started off in Kutcher's, ironically, was Wilt Chamberlain. He started off as a bellhop in Kutcher's, and in fact, Milton and Helen Kutcher were like parents to to him, and one of the Jewish guests at Kutcher's every year was Red Auerbach, the legendary uh, coach, the greatest NBA coach in basketball history of the uh, Boston Celtics. Um, he discovered Will Chamberlain in as a bellhop in Kutcher's. Muhammad Ali would actually train at Kutcher's also. Milton uh, Kutcher was a huge supporter of sports, but Grossinger's wasn't that far behind because Rocky Marciano would train at Grossinger's. And in fact, Grossinger's was the first, has the distinction of being the first place in the world with artificial snow for skiing. So that's um, just a little taste of the great Jewish Catskill Mountains. Um, this is Yehudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can uh, reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, virtual tours, lectures, online lectures, and um, and you can... Uh, uh, sponsorships, anything else. And you can, um, don't forget also the Legacy Judaica, uh, uh, Legacy Judaica auction, uh, impressive auction on September 13th. Go to legacyjudaica.bitspirit.com and you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites at Jewish J Soundbites at Podbean. You can Follow us on Twitter at JSoundBytes, and I hope you enjoyed.